You got me a pen. I gave you Pokemon cards and you bought me a pen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin and my friend, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we are going to have a conversation on charitable giving or generosity in general. And for our segment, we are going to be doing a No and Jamonin segment where we'll each share our best and worst gifts. So this conversation in particular, I'm really, really glad that we are doing it because this is actually a point of conflict in my own personal life. I've struggled with not generosity, but where to place that generosity when it comes to giving money, particularly on the charity side, because most of the, my giving has been through the church as a tithe. I mean, if you've grown up in evangelical churches, you probably get the yearly message or sermon about giving your 10% and doing all that kind of stuff. And I always felt weird about that because I was almost always on staff at a church. So I was like, why am I giving? And I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole nother episode, I'm sure. But then I also struggle with, well, where do I give my money now? Like, how many stories do we hear about charities who keep so much of a percentage of the money and how much of your money does it really, like, do you really make a difference in the lives of people? And uh, especially in connection with all the things that we talk about and bring up when it comes to global poverty and people being taken advantage of by bigger systems and corporations and how many nonprofits that we give to are just like corporations or just as bad as corporations. So all these things have been swimming in my mind and I've read stuff and looked at stuff and I'm hoping that at the end of this conversation, you too, my sages will provide me with more clarity at the end of all of this. Yes, brother sage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer the term muse, but sage is fine. So do you think we should make a distinction here between an idea of spiritualized giving and and nonprofit giving? I mean, there's a lot of crossover, I understand, but like, it seems like the motivations are different. Mm -hmm. Like one's like sowing into the kingdom of heaven for a lot of people and the other is like trying to make a a more an activist difference in the world to causes they believe in. Um, And I wonder if that's pretty fundamentally different. I don't know. I think it depends upon your perspective. I think they're the same, mm. but that's part of the problem is that I think a large portion of Christianity does differentiate it, and I don't think it should be differentiated. Like each furthers what we view the kingdom to be or kingdom or however we want to refer to that. I think the problem is delineating it and separating it, being that this is a higher giving and this is a lower giving when I think it's it's mostly about – I would say, you know, to quote Paul, you know, that that idea about giving with a cheerful heart. If you don't want to give, don't give. Like, the point is that it's not this, like, duty thing. I think it's something that should flow out of something that we're cultivating in our own heart in general. And it's going to come out. Whether we're – if we're excited about a church, we're going to give to a church. If we're excited about a particular um, – or moved by a particular story or something, then we're going to give to that Kickstarter. Or we're going to give to that charity that's providing uh, research for a certain disease. So I think it's more about cultivating a personal heart of generosity, but also trying to be responsible with where we're giving that and making sure that our money is – reflecting how we feel about why we gave in the first place. You know, it's it's kind of the American way, isn't it? It really is. It's like yeah. it is, we are culturally more primed to give than other places in the world. Um, but I, I can understand how that higher and lower giving thing maybe emerge because if you're faced with a choice between like buying someone who's starving food and like giving tithes to the church for office paper, 
You know, it's it's really <laughs> it's really yeah. hard to motivate people to give to the mundane ritualized activities of keeping an organization going when there's like real desperate need out there, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you incentivize people to give to the church instead of somewhere else? Like you you create a spiritual hierarchy. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a maybe a cynical way of looking at it. It's not cynical. It's it's a totally Jesus way of looking at it. If you look at Jesus's big move that got him crucified, it was cleaning out a temple where people tithed their percentages and it didn't go to the poor that he cared about. He said his good news was good news for the poor. And what Jeff is saying is is right on. It's the bifurcation of the gospel and good news for the poor. Wait um, a minute. He didn't clear out a temple. Huh? He did not clear out he a temple. He cleaned out a temple. Absolutely. No. He, they were lending money and selling things mm-hmm. at the temple. Yeah. That's what he cleared out. He yeah. didn't clear out the temple coffers. It, but those are some of the same people. He, he was mad. He that drove like, out. That, that's the thing. He, he, oh. he said, he said that the people that were collecting money in the temple, he mm-hmm. accused them of all kinds of things. All of his parables cast in, them into horrible light. They, the, yeah. the temple system itself was judged by Jesus. He said the whole thing would be destroyed. Right. That, that was, mm. that was Jesus's prophecy, whether he said that beforehand or not. The gospels present Jesus as judging the temple itself because it no longer served the purposes of God, which was to take care of the poor and the needy. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I've heard, I've heard the argument before in the past that in the Hebrew Bible, there's tithing to the temple and then there's giving of alms to the poor. There's leaving the corners of your field for the poor who need to come collect it and take care of themselves. And there's this other kind of giving, which is giving to God. And uh, that that split is probably unhelpful because, especially with Jesus's teachings, there is no difference between giving to the poor and giving to God, right? Jesus's teachings talk so much about giving. I mean, it's really amazing that we spend yeah. a lot of our contemporary debate time talking about like issues that have really only a couple of verses, but like giving and wealth in the Bible is a prominent theme. Uh-huh. So, but rich people don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you mentioned earlier, Mona, the idea of like, that's the American way. And that's kind of my problem. Like the, um, I think he's one of the co-founders of Twitter. His name is Biz Stone. And basically Wait, like, his name is Biz? Biz. Yeah. Like, Biz. That's awesome. That's kind of like the perfect social media <laughs> like mogul name. He has to introduce name. himself with air guns every time. What's up? I'm Biz Stone. <laughs> but he was, he was quoted saying that philanthropy, philanthropy is the future of marketing and it's a way that brands are going to win. Like that's kind of his, mm-hmm. his thing. So I'm thinking like we have this idea of giving. But it's so like they're only giving to get. And to me, it's no different from my background in church with Pentecostalism. And, and you kind of see this represented the best in, you know, televangelists and TBN and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of, well, you're not just giving, you're giving to get more. So it's this, you know, an American way of you give because you're, you know, to spend money to make money. And that's like applied to generosity. Like, I don't know. I feel like if we are going to give something to a charity or to someone in need or whatever, it should be with the the joy of knowing that we did lose, that we did give something of ourselves, and that we're not doing it for for selfish motivations. And I, I I'm conflicted with all of that because then we have like um, I read this article recently about uh, Susan B. Coleman, the the breast cancer awareness nonprofit, and someone laid oh, out boy. like all of their. Um, their financials and how they're spending this percentage on this and very little percentage of the money that they bring in actually goes towards what they say they're, they're saying they're gaining research for. And I had a real problem with that. And then I read this book called Uncharitable that really conflicted me because it talks about how 
that the nonprofits in our country are on an unlevel playing field on how people will complain about a place like Susan B. Coleman for paying an executive like $450,000 a year to be on staff. But then this book poses the problem of, well, then then we're putting nonprofits in a disadvantage within our capitalist system because you're taking away the things that they can do to mm-hmm. make money that other businesses can do for just for profit. You know what I mean? So it's like – Like hiring competent people at a competitive Yeah, because salary, a competent person isn't going to be there. So how do you balance both of those things and still like feel comfortable about the money that you give to an organization and the way they spend it and – and I don't know. I'm 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 confused. Really, it's really hard. I mean, someone I I don't remember the name. We can put it in the show notes that the there's a there was a book that came out recently. Someone coined the term the nonprofit industrial complex because mm. the ways that we have set up our society in the tax break system that we have and the tax loopholes really incentivizes people to be f- philanthropists, philanthropic. But then those nonprofits get so big that they and they get so much infrastructure that they at a point exist really to just keep themselves going. They're no longer working to get themselves out of a job because a really a strong nonprofit will seek to solve the problem that it exists to solve. But Mm. if it solves the problem that the nonprofit can no longer exist or it has to shift missions and focus. So that's a that's a huge part of the criticism that the industrial complex, it really it's self it's like a self perpetuating motion machine. but they're, you know, it's, you know, but I've heard counter arguments to say, you know, it, it really is problematic that the government would try to meet these needs. And there's so much corruption in the government that at least if things stay privatized, we can kind of, we can kind of maintain a level of competition and we can kind of maintain a level of accountability. Accountability so, is the, is an important thing. Right. And, and there, so, there are websites out there that do like. Uh, nonprofit watches and they'll say this percentage of overhead goes to, you know, you're trying to give, it becomes visceral because you try to give money to people in need and you don't realize that 90 cents on the dollar is going to pay staffers and Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff and never really reaching the people that it was intended to. But that 10 cents of the dollar is a lot of times a really massive amount. So it's a scale, it's a scale thing. So I don't, it's really, this is a really complicated thing. Um, But so I guess a lot of people would say that yes, the nonprofit industrial complex has its serious issues, but it's the lesser of two evils as opposed to a governmental control Mm. and getting um, that tends to be monopolistic and it tends to be more inefficient than the nonprofit world. So it's, but I, I'm really conflicted about it too. I think, you know, studies have shown that wealth that philanthropic wealth tends to stay class stratified or it's very pitying, right? So either rich people are giving to rich people for like art galas and crap, you know, or golf outings or, or they're giving at lower classes in ways that are often are not meeting their real needs or sustaining them, like teaching them to fish. So uh, it, te- wealth a lot of times tends to stay, it, it tends to perpetuate classism yeah. instead of flatten it. You know? Well, and if you're if so, you're coming at it from you know, I just want to say his name again, Biz Stone's perspective, in the sense that it becomes this marketing tool to give, then it becomes you're not even really drawing awareness to something that needs awareness being brought to. All you're doing is bringing awareness to your brand and letting people know that you are like it's kind of if you're if, if corporations are people, then they're real big douchebags because <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like, oh, look at me. Here's all the great stuff that I do. So you should you should it, be my friend. It's it, it's, it was like it was like three years ago. It was like three years ago that I realized 
like 2013 was the year that corporations flipped social justice for profit. Like it just, it felt like that to me. It seemed like every single, and you know, what's interesting. Um, I marched in a pride parade recently with my church and there was Kaiser Permanente, Walmart, like all kinds of people with mm. huge floats celebrating equality. And on the one hand, it's like, I can resent, I can, I, on some visceral level, I resent the fact that a corporation is taking advantage to get more airtime with the public and to win over customers and things like that. But on the other hand, it, it feels good. It feels good to have people who are publicly displaying care, you know, even if they have malicious intent. The outcome is a good thing. Yeah. But do they have malicious intent? Because there they are might real people in those yeah. marketing departments that probably had to fight for that yeah. somewhere because that's a cause they believed in. You know, I, I mean, Dirty I don't corporations know. is all I can think. Well, then on the, I, know, I can't get away from that. Then on the other spectrum, you have companies like Tom and Bombas who are, who their whole mm-hmm. platform for business is one to one. So we are almost the opposite. We were taking advantage of the fact that Americans like to, you know, buy designer things and expensive things and using that to, give to people in a way that that actually helps and gives some like practical things to people who need it so i don't know social social enterprise or social capitalism is now like in some states i think in california is becoming a new legal category so you have a nonprofit, for-profit and then there's now an in-between legal category when you're setting up a corporation called a social enterprise yeah that's fantastic yeah social entrepreneurship is what it's called. And you can, it's like they're running some pilot programs right now to see if people can register and be in a separate tax category. So I think that's really promising. I think it can go to a really dark place. Yes. But so, cause I think, you know, what's a capitalist dream? People excited to hand you their money. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the whole <laughs> point, right? Yeah. How can we get people excited to hand us our money? <laughs> well, tie it to altruism. Get mm-hmm. people thinking that when they, by their crap, they're also giving back and they, you know, their conscience can be assuaged for consuming or something, you know, that's a, that's a extreme form of it, but mm-hmm. um, a really prevalent one. You know, I, I can't help but uh, think of one, the ways that we're talking about really big concepts and it helps to see where it shows up. And for me, I know we're talking about charities and social justice, and it's sad that this is almost in a different category in my brain, but it, the most blatant form of abuse of the nonprofit system in our society is churches. What I'm thinking of is a John Oliver segment that he did. He did an episode on last week tonight. And I love that show. He's such good investigative journalism and comedy at the same time. But he looked at churches that get these giant tax breaks. And usually for a church, that's okay. I work at a very small church. It is a very good thing that we get a tax break and it helps a lot of people. But there are massive churches that give like um, housing allowance, which is tax-free. Like I have a tax-free housing allowance. I'll say that on, on, on air right now. I get my my housing and I don't have to pay taxes on that income. And it helps me do what I do for the community and for the church that I work at. But there are pastors who live in mansions. We're like multi-million dollars. The property taxes are insane. Like the income, the, the amount of money you'd have to spend to rent or own that place is giant, but they get it relatively tax-free but Alan, or tax-free really good pastors i know and they do need two <laughs> pools to do what they do well it's true <laughs> so there's these giant churches They're baptizing that, people in those pools that Alan. is true it's they for are. the kingdom yep yep it's for the kingdom at i always balance as a pastor this steak dinner is really important for this person right now <laughs> you know what I at mean? what <laughs> point at what point do we have enough though and at what yeah. point is enough too much and you know, and it's really just not that, necessary. Though. I know it's really, it's, I mean, cause it's it, complicated. So someone could walk in right now and look at my ministry and see that I, I live in opulence 
compared yeah. to other people in the world, you know? So they're there, but at some level there definitely is a, uh, disparity that gets immoral and the, the beast becomes too big to call it nonprofit anymore. Uh, Mona said that a minute ago, at some point it's just like there to, to, to keep itself. Like if its mission was complete, it should be able to work. All churches should be able to work themselves into a place where, you know, people are taken care of and they don't need the system. But we create these huge systems, and then all the giving just goes to perpetuating it, and that's a problem. I think. I think that's a good point, and I'm I'm sure Alan, just as much as I have, you've been in meetings where the decision to make a certain decision ultimately comes down to whether people are going to stick around or keep their giving or whatever. I can't I can't count Always. on one hand how many. I mean, I can count on multiple hands if that makes any sense. The times where it was like, all right we're we're stuck on this decision and we know that it's the best thing to do but we don't want to lose giving so we're not going to do it. I read a book recently on the the prophets and talking about the idea how the prophets are intimately connected to the people that they are seeking justice for but not intimately connected to the institutions because then there's no matter how good that person is there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be a hesitation because your livelihood is dependent upon the very thing that you're criticizing and trying to, and, and criticizing for the purpose yeah. of making better. So how can a, a pastor, of interest. yeah, how can a pastor or a leader of a church like that really say what needs to be said without having that conflict? That's, that's so spot on. That's, and it, it, it's hard. And I'm not in ministry. I mean, my dad has been my whole life, but it's really hard for me thinking about people trying to care for others and always, always having to have money in the forefront of your thought is like, if we don't, you know, pay the church rent this week, we can't keep our doors open and then people will, you know, so it's really, it turns pastors into business people and they have to have like really to, in this day and age, like a business degree to, to make it work almost, you know, and that, that's sad. It, It really takes time and energy and effort away. And I can understand for that reason why churches would want to expand so they can have someone dedicated just to the administrative purposes of the church so that frees the pastors up to do what they are trained to do. Um, but then you get into a problem where you're kind of always trying to tap the congregation for money and always trying to weasel people in the doors. And, you know, you want, you want young families, you know, so the church feels vibrant and then you, the young families keep the old families or old, old folks around because they, you know, they get to be in an intergenerational community and the old people are the people with the money. So you got to keep them happy. I mean, it's just like this <laughs> weird domino effect where like, it's like the pastor is like cultivating this, like, like building this like community, but like with money in mind of all of it, not, not really meeting people's needs who care. Like y- you get a system where pastors have to worry so much about money that they're probably more subconsciously likely to pay attention to the parishioners who have more money and cater to them and invite them to be on the board instead of actually finding out what the community needs and meeting those needs. Like the system is set up to, in such a way that the pastors are turned into people that they're not meant to be kind of. So I, I, th- that taps on a, that taps on a real thing that I just dealt with. Um, I was talking to people that are in my denomination and they're saying it's a very common practice to know who gives what as a pastor. And for me personally, Maybe I'll think think along those lines someday, but I, I refuse to know who gives what in my congregation because I've seen I've seen ministers definitely cater to people who had more to give to the church. And that just seems like a fundamental difference between the ministry that we purport to be doing and what what's happening. Yeah. I think I agree. Th- th- this whole conversation is the is the is the hardest for me. I mean, I at some point it's viral. That's all I can describe it as. I, I've been in all sorts of ministries and all sorts of churches, and it feels like a virus. Like people come 
and a virus has to plant on a host cell and inject its DNA into that host cell that it can so it can propagate itself. And when you see families coming through the door, there, there's this sense that like we need them in so many different ways. We need them to fill our ministries. We need them to fill our you know coffers to give us money and like. That that for me, and especially the younger generation, is the most off-putting thing in the world. Yeah. To feel like you're coming into an, a place where you are going to be preyed upon is the exact opposite experience that you want in a church. And so, for me, I almost feel like those churches they're working. It's it's the sick justice that people are leaving those kinds of churches. Mm-hmm. We're all leaving this institution because it's trying to feed upon people to perpetuate itself. Yeah. And unless churches just do stuff like that's we have to really reclaim of doing stuff and not just the institution because it's eating smaller. These are churches across America. This is not just like some big topic or problem. This is the real life problems that people in churches and Christians are facing all the time. So it's heartbreaking for me. Yeah. I, I agree with what all that. And especially what you said earlier, like I, I still struggle to find any good reason for a pastor to know who gives what and, and what amount and all that kind of stuff. And the, the only solution that I've ever even come close to thinking might be a good idea is I was listening to an interview with, I believe it's the main president of Charity Water, and how they're very explicit about they do two separate fundraisers. Like they, they fundraise to big donors for administration costs. They say, look, we need to keep things floating. We need to make sure that 100% of the money that we get in from every regular donor is going straight to what they're giving to. So we want to make sure that we're getting the money to run the costs in a separate place. So they, they've, they've, you know, they've separated out their fundraising and, and being very clear on both sides. This is how much of your money is going to go to that. Yours is a hundred percent to the cause and yours is a hundred percent to administration and all that kind of thing. And I wonder if that's not an option or a solution for churches, perhaps, whereas the, where the, the, the daily administration costs, salary of the churches are somehow raised outside of the church so that no matter what happens or what's said from the pulpit, the people that are giving to that administration costs don't know and aren't a part of that regular life. And I wonder if that's a better function for denominations, perhaps, where they're providing that salary through fundraising that they're working on. And then the local church is worrying about this is the, this money's going to the work of the church. That, that's a really interesting idea, and I, but I think if that were to work, you'd really have to make a really strong case for why that church is a yes. positive, yeah, uh, part of the community, mm-hmm. you know, and not just benefiting its little insular, you know. And I've seen a lot of churches like on the brink of dying coming back because they've remade themselves as community centers and they don't. That's not a club. Like literally, anyone can come in and be part of the community. They don't have to have a doctrine or a set of beliefs, which is really problematic for some people's theology, but. You know, it, it, so this goes, this is, I, I'm so glad we're talking about this topic because I did my thesis research on this exact kind of thing for my master's program that I just finished. Yay, I'm done. Congratulations. Thank you. Feels <laughs> great. Uh, yeah. So, okay. I, I, I want to tell a story and I promise it'll connect, but Alan gave me a gift earlier today. Um, have you guys seen those single use toothbrushes? <laughs> It's a little tiny. Okay, so I'm like, I started brushing my teeth with it and it feels really weird at first, but then you realize you can kind of like get in there better than a normal toothbrush. And I started feeling like I was a whale and I had like little tiny fish cleaning my teeth, you know? Like I could like just get in there with the, you know, and scrub them out. So 
It's an example of a symbiotic relationship, just oh to give us all gosh. a mental picture. Hey, stop laughing. You just like Jesus juked a little. <laughs> I totally Jesus juked this tiny toothbrush. Uh, it makes me so happy. I, I couldn't stop brushing my teeth for like 10 minutes. I know it's weird, but yeah, that those things are addictive. It's really addictive. So, I feel like, you know, fun. I got little, like a tiny army of cleaner fish. Okay. Yeah. So symbiosis, right? So we've set up our society in a way that that uh, there are incentives for rich and poor to interact through philanthropic giving. And usually it's the rich giving at the poor so that the rich can live in a nicer society. Right. Could you say that? That's yeah. what they get out of it, you know, and they get the feeling that they're helping people. So it, at the advent of capitalism, the, the beginning, we're going back to Adam Smith before Adam Smith wrote the wealth of nations, which is like his, you know, his mammoth work on capitalism that people still refer back to this to this day to think about how wealth circulates in a free society how you protect against governmental monopoly how you you know provide competition and whatnot before he wrote that he wrote what he considered his most important work which is called the theory of moral sentiments and in this book he writes about creating a a society that rotates around sympathy and the sympathy is his first and foremost and primary understanding of the ways we should treat each other. And he said, you know, we should really um, stretch our minds to kind of put ourselves in each other's shoes and understand what it might be like from that person's perspective and give in response to their experience. So he really, really wanted to create a society that has strong moral fabric where people treated each other you know, it, it, he was a strong Calvinist in a way that, you know, would be Christ-like. The problem was that he really wrote his work to upper class people. And the problem is that he talks a lot about people who suffer. And he says in this work, and this is what I wrote about, that the people who suffer need to bring down their suffering, like bring down their emotional expression so that those who are sympathizing can hold that suffering within their imaginations and relate to it. Don't get burned out on it to like kind of thing. Well, it puts, so it's puts kind of an onus of responsibility on people who suffer and people who have nothing to, to like put on a face that's agreeable or acceptable in some mm. ways. He also says that be, God's will for us is to have fellow is to have kind feeling. Like we experience the love of God when people think like kindly toward us and treat us kindly. And what does wealth do? It, causes people to treat us kindly. Mm -hmm. So it's better to be wealthy because we experience more of God's love. He says this in this There's work. some of that stuff in Proverbs. <laughs> if you dig hard enough, there are. There's okay, some Proverbs so about stuff There's biblical like that. basis sure. for this. It's not totally sure. outlandish. But so, and he says, you know, being basically poverty makes you invisible and mm -hmm. it ma makes you invisible to other people. Therefore, you can't experience the love of God. So, in his moral system, which he later built capitalism out of this moral understanding, he talks about Basically, those who sympathize are kind of the ones being benevolent and sharing the love of God. And those who are suffering need to cater to the imaginations of the sympathizers. Wow. So it creates it. So there's class. Can you, can you hear the classism in that? Oh, yeah. Can you hear how that would really be super problematic when it comes to modern categories of race? Because people who are in power who are white, literally their imaginations can't stretch to understand what it could be like to have be be singled out because of the color of your skin like there's no there's no category for that kind of sympathizing in our in our imaginations mm. unless we really try hard to make one so when you combine that moral structure of relating to each other with race with gender with a lot of the things that we know about today 
um, what you really get is uh, power being maintained in, in, in benevolent structures. And so what I wrote about my thesis, and it's not a very good paper, otherwise I'd say, you know, let's publish it and let you write it. I wasn't super happy with the way it turned out, but I was trying to get at the idea that like, when you're being benevolent, you see yourself a certain way. You see yourself as having enough means. You're hashtag blessed to be able to give to other people. And that puts you in a higher class than somebody who needs your help. And you're going to treat them differently with pity, with sympathy, and maybe instead of empathy, you're not prone to talk with them and get to know them. You're prone to give at them and you're prone to keep their suffering contained within the limits of your imagination. So it creates a certain type of sympathizer. Okay. So what I did in my paper and I regret this decision to this day because I turned it into PhD applications and it didn't get accepted because <laughs> I think I went a little too far, but I was trying to understand I feel like I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. Uh, no, this I don't is apologize for talking too much. Hey, she actually, she actually did the hashtag blessed by the way with her fingers, with my fingers while she yeah. was talking. So. I do. I talk with my it's hands. Infinitely on the air. more entertaining to watch you talk with your hands <laughs> and just on air. Oh my gosh, Alan, that's beyond okay. my imagination to understand. So it is beyond hard to hard to imagine. Uh, so, so my question starting this whole project and why I started doing this research is why in God's green earth in a nation where we have actual billionaires, more than one, we have multiple, the millionaires and the billionaires. Why, why in this nation with unprecedented wealth do one in five kids go to bed hungry on a regular basis? It makes absolutely no sense to me. We have so much technology. We have so much wealth. That should not be. That absolutely shouldn't be. I don't care if you're a capitalist or a socialist or a communist or Green Party. I don't care what your political persuasion is. It's completely unacceptable. And, and to me, if the nonprofit sector was capable, we would have solved this by now. You know, it's just it's not possible for private entities to get everybody like people are just going to fall through the cracks with the nonprofit system. So anyway, that's kind of a, an aside we can talk about in a sec. So I was wondering, and then I was thinking a lot about the ice bucket challenge, actually a lot. So that's what you used? That's, <laughs> that's what why, I talked about in my paper and I regret it. I regret it. Yeah. This, these are my, my choices that I have to live with. Anyway, the ice bucket challenge. Okay. So here you have one in five kids going to bed hungry on a regular basis who can't, and, and parents who can barely keep the electricity on, you know, and the kids go to school and they can't learn because they're starving. So they get behind in their educational mm. processes and then they drop out of school and they usually go to prison. Like it's a... It's a whole freaking terrible system. Okay, so the Ice Bucket Challenge raised millions and millions and millions of dollars in a short period of time for a disease that affects 12,000 people a year. That's a lot of people. I understand that's a need. But like, what? where is it? How, how did we develop in our fabric of a society where we really, like, we have so much individual choice and no accountability about where we give our money that... We get to give to really sensational, like quote unquote, sexy causes. We get to give in ways that entertain us and benefit us before they benefit people who are actually in need. Really giving is about the people who give. I don't care what you say. Being a philanthropist is about philanthropists, not mm. about other people. There are altruistic philanthropists out there. There are people who give completely anonymously and really listen to need. I understand that. But in the ways that we think about ourselves as a nation of givers, there's a pride and a classism implicit in that 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 really um it, it ignores the mundane survival of of people and it it highlights and sensationalizes the extreme sexy needs so i i can't i can't in good conscience wrap my mind around that i'm and and so hear me i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the ice bucket challenge at all 
I'm saying that there is something wrong with when it's in the context of greater, massive, nasty need that we are just ignoring, you know? So I don't know what to do with that. The, uh, that's so interesting. And that, I think that just nailed, I could never figure out why some of the YouTube prank videos where they give money to homeless people, why those pissed me off so much. Now I realize like there are people who gain popularity or importance or whatever. They create videos where they give money to people in need. And it's this like really beautiful thing. And it is hard, you know, pulls on your heartstrings. This person is in such dire need. Now they're getting something that they needed, but it's, it's a romanticizing of the giving itself and of the giver. And we should look at those videos and just be pissed off that we live in a world where that's a reality for people. Where, where people More, are homeless. Yeah, where people are homeless. The homelessness is Absolutely. The, Instead yeah. of romanticizing the giving, we should be angry that, that there's a system that chews people up and spits them out. But you know what? I can't, how can you get angry at people giving, right? That's messed up. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. but, but if you think about it. If, if, if for a minute you set aside the altruism and think about it as when you're seen as a philanthropic person, you get power. You're getting something out of it. Even if you get nothing, quote unquote, back, like you're maintaining power and even you're functioning as a powerful person in society because you, if you just think about power, not as something nasty, but as the ability to affect change in a community organizing political sense, power, the ability to affect change. If I have money, I have the ability to affect change. I'm exercising power, even if I do it anonymously. I'm exercising power. And a lot of times the need that I'm giving to does not give that person power or the ability to affect their own change. It doesn't share power. It just transfers resources. Well, and that's the problem with this whole thing is, is what we're talking about. Like we're saying, well, at least they still got money. So how can we say that that's not, that's not a good thing. But the problem is we're looking at not in terms of one person's situation got better we need to look in terms of efficiency. How much more could it have been better if we went this way? And I think we need to look at that. And I think for some people, maybe that's a difficult thing to look at because it it's still better. And, you know, how much more could we have done? Not just the fact that something was done. And I think that that's kind of a cop out. Yeah, it really, it what, what you're pointing to, I think is for me the most frustrating. It really is the foundation of the politics of respectability. You hear this a lot in civil rights conversations that people who are suffering have to become as respectable as possible and look as much like the class they're trying to appeal to, to be humanized instead of the class who's in, who has that privilege, like going and getting them and saying, what do you need? How can, you know, it's, it really, and so even, and that's been the criticism of politics of respectability. It doesn't change social order. No. It just makes people who are suffering have to do extra work, really. And, uh, and when the onus is on people in need or a victim or yeah. whatever, you're putting it on the wrong person. Yeah. I, I don't know why this, this came to mind, but it's the same thing with like um, uh, modesty culture, right? The onus is on the, the person that's going to be taken advantage of and they have to dress modestly instead of the people that should be doing what's right. Yeah. And for people who have a lot, what's right is taking care of those who don't. That just is morally right. I mean, across across all religions, almost like it's it's almost a universal truth of humanity that when someone has a lot and someone is in need next to you and you don't do anything, that's wrong, right? You're helping actively kill them. Yeah, you yeah. are the good that, that and, yeah. and that, that's what I, I bring up the Bible a lot because I love it so much. But that's what James talks about is knowing good and not doing it is wrong. I've been thinking a lot about that parable of the widow with the two coins. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mm, this yeah. whole conversation. I actually, I used to like that parable, but I don't know what to do with that anymore. I do. I can help you. Let, okay. So let's, let's just remind, <laughs> remind the <Lewis. laughs> 
<laughs> the widow's mites. Right? So it's so there. Jesus is in the temple with his mm-hmm. buddies, right? And uh, he sees a widow come in who, and, and widows in that society, like they can't work. They're completely dependent on those around them to take care of them. They have yes. no other means. Otherwise they'll die. And uh, so she comes in, she brings two coins and there's another rich guy who comes in, like makes a big show of his giving like, look at me. <laughs> it's exactly how a Jesus Pharisee. said it. Yeah. Look at me, a Pharisee. Yeah. So, so a high class religious, you know, professional or, or whatever. And Jesus turns to his buddies and says, hey, you know, that widow gave more than he did, you know, mm-hmm. proportionally, but also because of her heart, like she did it in a, in a hum- humble way. But like, so she's, but she's giving that money to the temple that's already opulent and doesn't really need, does, does the temple need her two coins? That, Why did the temple let her give that? That's actually Jesus' point. The larger context is criticism of the temple itself. And so oh. Jesus is actually condemning the temple for taking her money. Whoa. She's tithing more than the other person is. And they should have realized that she was need and not, and given to and her not asking instead. for that. Yeah. Oh, dang. That totally changes. Yeah, everything. That, Jesus's ministry was criticism of the way that, that it worked. So I agree. I I've seen that story sensationalized and I've went to, I think it's the crystal cathedral has a bronze statue of the woman giving her two mites. That's like, and this is like a million dollar. Oh, it's horrible. Itself. Yeah. <laughs> to actually put that into <laughs> bronze, bronze and show and, oh, and, and everybody walks past it. It's in, in the entrance to the church. So you walk past this example of this poor woman who's giving and shouldn't you give more oh god and it's, it's weird sick. to locate that i think it i think it might even be in the gospel of luke to locate that in the ministry of jesus to the poor and condemnation of the rich is like the worst heresy <laughs> that i can think of that poor people should give there are people in you know in my life when i don't have enough I can give in creative ways. And I think it's very empowering for all of us to know that we have something to contribute to this yes. world and to other people. It's and very so, important. Yeah, very important. And I think that anyone can give and one giving is not elevated above another. And just because someone doesn't have as much doesn't mean they're not giving as much. I think that's, that's an important message, but it misses the larger thing to say that that's the important message to take away from that story. So there you go. Awesome. maybe i'm wrong well and then you have churches no. that fly in the face of that where they make it a spiritual discipline like you don't have because you don't give and they take advantage of that situation and put people in a place of you know i've never heard a pastor give advice that says you know if you're having a tough time this month or you can't make rent or whatever they always say give to the church and you it'll be provided <laughs> you know what i mean like it's the opposite of that there's pastors who like even say take out uh, a loan uh give us we're, we're going to put up an image of a checkbook you just give us your routing number and all that kind of stuff and we'll take care of it for you and we're <laughs> oh super God. predatory you know you know what sucks oh. about that uh jeff you said some pastors like say oh you don't have because you don't give right yeah that's like shaming people into giving is the opposite of what you mentioned earlier paul saying giving free from compulsion like how did we miss that how did we miss the idea of free from compulsion sort of giving like that's um to force people into into shameful ways of being and expectations that put undue pressure on people is the exact opposite of what church should be doing. So, so. okay. Yes, people should give of their own volition. Absolutely. I'm I'm so conflicted about this because so in, in my, you know, modern liberal thought or whatever, I have a hard time with the idea of miracles. Okay. But my family growing up, like, you know, we didn't have anything. My pa- my dad worked as a pastor, right? But my parents still like gave a lot. And I remember distinctly more than one time when I was real little, uh, my parents wouldn't have any groceries in the house. We'd have like cheers and bananas. 
And they would give their last $20 bills bill in the offering, like really on the full faith that God would restore to them more than what they gave. And more than once, the very next day, there would be bags of groceries on our doorstep from someone who did, we never knew who, who it was. So that's, that's where I think that this is not so simple. And maybe there is something miraculous to that. I hate prosperity gospel. I think it's really awful, actually, personally, as a theology. I mean, I could, I could go on a diatribe about that, but, but, but there are people who sincerely believe it and I don't want to take that away from them. And they've actually seen ways in which it's, you know, that, that concept of, of total generosity is really quite liberating for them and being unattached to the material world, mm-hmm. trusting that your community will take it, be, uh, take it care of you. I think the, the, the heart of that is really admirable if you can do it, you know? So I, mm-hmm. I, believe, uh, I, I don't know. I believe in, I believe personally in divine action. I do believe God affects change in the world and that it's not, it's not just um, a spiritualized thing. God's interaction with us. So like that story I hear correlation, not causation. Like I, I, I hear somebody being in need and God working in a broken system to take care of people that shouldn't have been lacking for groceries. Yeah, you know. But and, it's, and, so the timing of it is weird, though. It yeah. happened like multiple times. Mm. It would be like the very last zero dollars in the bank account, and then something would come like that. You know. So yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I honestly, my mind does not know what mm. to do with that. You know. So. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. <laughs> does God does God take care of people who are generous? I think that's so. A, well, that's my first question. thought is people that are more prominent in a church setting are the ones that get their needs met quicker. Yeah. What if your true. family wasn't very vocal in church, wasn't leadership, you know, like Good point. So, I mean, I'm there's all kinds of layers and circumstances and I think that that's the that's the problem with those moments. I think that those moments should be what they are, which is encouraging to the people that received, but not a textbook example of how we should look at the whole system as a whole. And I think that that's For where we run else. into this problem yeah. is because we, 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 we impose those instances as exceptions to the rule, but we just need to leave them as ex- exceptions to the rule and not allow them to prevent us from reform. Mm. And, and you know what? To layer something on top of that, and another way to say it is I do not believe in guaranteed outcomes, not even a bit. I think if you read the book of like Proverbs, especially, you'll see guaranteed outcomes. Live good, get good. That's magic. Be good, live. You know, yeah. There's there's all this advice for if you do this, X, Y, Z will happen. That's like and, the and, definition and a, of magic. It's formulaic. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and there's an element of truth to it. You you live responsibly. You reap the benefits from it. It's just a, a grouping of wisdom. But you read, you know, Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible, and it speaks back to Proverbs and says, <laughs> "That's funny. There are no guaranteed outcomes. You can do. You can." you know, box against the wind. There's, there's not a sense that I'm going to give my last 20 bucks. And I know for a fact, God will reward it. When, when things happen, when we give good and we get good, I, I bless God for that personally. And as a minister up in front of other people, I think that that is wonderful, but I would never tell somebody give the little bit you have because you will receive. Cause that I think, what if you're enters. keeping them from blessing Alan, <laughs> <laughs> but giving them that guaranteed outcome to hold on to. Yeah. Is wrong for me. It's wrong. All right. Well, yeah, I think that provision, providence. Wait, can I? Oh, are we going to get last? <laughs> words? Yeah, we're going to get. <laughs> we should talk we're for so three hours. <laughs> we're going to get last <laughs> words on this. So let let's let's each give our our takeaway, and then we'll uh, we'll move on to our segment because I think we perhaps this is spawning new <laughs> new episodes in the future. But new um, so so yeah. what do we do? What do you what do we do with all this information, Mona? Do you want to start? 
So, okay. Something you said, Alan, earlier, I think I want to build on it. So you said something like, you know, having enough, having enough means and, and being next to your neighbor who has none and not helping them is a sin or is wrong. You yeah. I think I would wait, take that further. And I think, I think you might agree, but I'm not sure. We'll, we'll see. In all the thinking I've been doing about this, I've, I've been thinking a lot about benevolence as an identity and need as an identity. How many people, how many times do we call people needy? Like that's who they are to mm-hmm. us. They are, they're always needy. They're perpetually needy. And if we take their need away, their identity also goes away. So in our thinking about this stuff, my, I have been trying to change my thinking, not as in helping people, but as in ending people's need. Mm. without ending them like by radically wow. humanizing them by ending their need they are not their need they are people not have need. needs they are not needy if we end their need they're still gonna be in community sorry i just us. got chills <laughs> people have needs they are not needy that's it, a radical shift change in thinking it's a huge change in thinking and 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 i think the thing is like we people get afraid like if you know if p- people needy people aren't needy anymore they will stop coming to church they won't be a community anymore yeah. they, won't, they won't rely on each other there won't be dependence you know but i think it's exactly the opposite when you end people's need you free them to be their fuller selves and then you free them to give to others like you 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 create a world where no one has to beg nobody has to lack you know and and i think that is the love of god i think that's the primary way we show the love of god to each other is working within systems like you said jeff i think you would use the word efficiency earlier we have we have a we have a system of waste and and lack that's not paired up but but looking for ways that end need and create a system of flourishing for everyone um so i think for me it's not giving to each other it's ending systematic lack so that people won't be in need in the future because you can help someone today, but they'll still need mm. to eat tomorrow. So it's it's not even teaching someone to fish because not everyone can fish. We don't live in a world where everyone can fish. Children can't fish. The elderly can't fish. Disabled people can't fish. There's no reason in the world that people in this day and age in our country should live in poverty. Zero. You know, so anyway, that's my that's my shtick. And I think um, I've been trying to re retool my thinking about this hmm. issue. Kingdom come. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Only when we get to heaven. No. There will be no more weeping. Oh my then. gosh. <laughs> All your needs will be met then. So <laughs> uh, be good and go on your way. <laughs> well, and, and for me, I think on the other side of the coin, as the giver, um, why I, I think maybe, and maybe I personally, I stress too much. And I think that if we're worried about generosity, are we giving enough? Are we doing enough? Um, you know, it kind of goes back to that whole thing where, you know, don't give your $20 bill to the homeless guy in the corner because he's just going to buy alcohol with it. Da, 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 da. Like, I don't know. I, I Despite Maybe all the questions is. that we have about where our money's going, how we're doing it, I still think it's important to give while we figure it out because we're cultivating something else inside of us. And I think that even though our money isn't always going to go to the right place, we'll figure it out as we live our lives. But I don't want to lose that. You know, I don't want to become... I don't want to have this issue of lack of intimacy when it comes to my giving. You know, how we do that with people in our relationships where we close off if we have these enough experiences and then it closes us off from all kinds of great things happening. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to how we give our money or our time or our resources. And I think we just got to keep doing it while we figure it out. That's good. Yeah. I, I don't have any uh, takeaways, but I do have a giveaway. <laughs> 
I think I think in these conversations, every every one of us, and this is what we what some of us have been saying over and over, is that we struggle to put this into practice or into real life terms because we have all these conflicting emotions and ideas, and it's such a messy topic. Um, I know that I don't want to see myself as a benevolent person and everyone else as needy people for sure, but I do know that there are some practices that uh, if you cultivate, like Jeff just said, it cultivates you and. For me, one of those things was um, when people ask me for money, I made a decision like maybe five years ago that my default setting is give. My default setting is always give to every single person that asks for me. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. That's biblical. <laughs> You're such a good Christian. I was guys, it's in the Bible somewhere. If I have cash on me, I, I give. And if it feels wrong, if for some reason I am convicted that it's wrong in that moment, I'll act on that. But otherwise, I will give to every single person a drunk, you know, someone who's going to buy drugs, whatever. It doesn't matter unless it really like unless it feels wrong. There's like a judgment call there or something. I don't know. That's that's language that my. But your default is not suspicion. My default is not suspicion. No, and uh, my default so is suspicion. Right, and mine was too for a long time. And 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 I think you can't actually get to see them as people until that's gone. Wow. Once you take the suspicion away, then you can actually start to see them as people, maybe with needs, but you know, people nonetheless. And so my, my thing is, is I, I don't carry a lot of cash. You know, I use cards all the time, but if I have cash on me or in my car for some reason, I consider that money, money I'm using, but it's everyone else's money too. So Whoa. don't, don't use that as a reason to come up to me and ask me for money. <laughs> hey, Alan, can I have five bucks? <laughs> but yeah, but that's, that's a, it's a tool to, to just teach me that, um, that that that's that's the goddamn truth is that we are <laughs> we are all people and money doesn't freaking matter at the end of the day and it really does it is powerful it's important it doesn't it's matter a, until you don't have any it, it doesn't matter until you don't have any and that's that's that, that's the that's the thing is that i i hate that we live in a world where everything is valued and that we we talked about this before in, in other episodes and i think any time that we can separate people from their worth quote unquote to us as a society, including how much is in their bank account or whatever, whether they're worthy of food or not or service. Anytime we can separate those things, I'm down. And I love what you said. Sorry, if I can just throw one more thing in there, Jeff, there's a, there's a theological economist named Nimi Waraboko who writes about money as spirit, as like life energy and life force. I don't think he's the only one to say it, but he's, he's a Pentecostal theologian. His work is really fascinating, but kind of like what you said, like really money is like the energy to survival. Like it allows you to live. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we think about it that way, then sharing becomes like, you're actually giving, you're sharing life with someone you're sharing, you're sharing life force or life energy. And so, yeah, it doesn't matter as long as we have enough. Um, I like that. That's like the opposite saying it really does matter and it's important to share. Well, yeah. So it's different ways to think about it. But um, yeah, I think maybe that's the the key to being truly generous is suspending judgment and letting that person Mm. have agency with whatever they're being given and whatever you're giving them. And because you're letting them live their life the way they want to live it. And caring for their whole person is like much more than just handing them a $5 bill or whatever. Yeah. So can I have five bucks? <laughs> Absolutely. All, all good thoughts. Someone um, else's. <laughs> so let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to this particular conversation or would like to dig a little deeper on the topic, go to irenacast.com slash 67. That's irenacast.com slash 67. And for questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for the show in general, you can always contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. On the other side of the music, we'll continue this theme by talking about our best and worst gifts. 
All right. Well, we are going to be bringing back a Noah and Jamonin segment. We've had several of these throughout the course of the show. And if you're new listening to us, uh, Jamonin is our celebrity trio name. So we've taken all of our names and <laughs> couple. bunched <laughs> no, it into... We're a trio, not yeah. a couple. Weird. And uh, so it's it's a mix between Alan, Jeff, and Mona. And that is what we came up with. So for this one, I think what we're going to do is we're going to share our best and worst gifts received or given, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll mix it up. We'll we'll be spontaneous about that. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm going to share the best I've given and received because the worst gift I've ever received is tied for every Christmas and birthday from my parents. And I was there for all of them. Yeah. You just say They still think I'm like is, six man. years old and I get like random Star Wars <laughs> toys and mugs. Then Pez it's dispenser. Just, it's always a Pez dispenser. Every time it's I've awful. seen you open it. Yeah. Man, if you, that's, that's yeah, the yeah. thing about like saying that you have like a favorite something like I have a friend who like mentioned in high school that she liked pigs and there like, you go. she gets so much pig crap from everybody <laughs> in her family. They just like they've decided that she collects pig stuff, but she's never sought to collect pig stuff. So I'll go to her house and be like, oh, that's a nice thing. She's like, oh, my God, they just keep sending it. So. Jeff, Jeff has worked hard, though, to chant the mantra of like gift card. And I've heard it, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. You know, gift cards are nice. Yeah. Gift cards are great. <laughs> you can do anything with a gift card. Buy me honest, a worked, gift card next year, or I'm gonna. <laughs> it worked one year, and then that it was. It did the work end. one year. You worked so hard for that gift card. Then though, they went back proud. to giving you Star Wars chuckies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was proud. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> okay, well, I, I I'll talk about my <clears throat> favorite first and my worst last. Do we give both right away? Or are we gonna? Mix it Let's up. Let's mix it up. Let's mix it mix up. Mix it up. Okay, yeah. I'll just give my favorite. Favorite gift ever. Totally random. It was on a Valentine's Day. I'd been married for, I think, two years at that point. And uh, I had never really gotten anything on Valentine's Day before. I think Vicky sent me a box of cookies in college. That was wonderful on a Valentine's Day, maybe. Um, but usually Valentine's Day is in where I come from, some somewhere where a man buys flowers for a woman, and that's it. Like, you know, a card, so a box of chocolates, and it's very geared toward a woman. And the second second Valentine's Day we spent together as a married couple, I was coming home from work, and I got out of the car, and there was a box as tall as she was on the sidewalk. And I was like, what the heck is this? She's like, it's your Valentine's Day present. And I was like, a Valentine's Day present? What are you talking about? And uh, I, it was just surprised me. It was so exciting. And it was a chair, a computer chair, and it was so comfortable and i had been like using some wooden stool you know with nails poking me or something that's so thoughtful i know it was it was practical and wonderful and it's surprising and uh i've liked valentine's day ever since believe it or not (laughs) so that's my favorite my worst is terrible but that that one's my favorite okay we'll come back to that we'll come back to that okay so i think i'm like easy to please because i've never been like a big buy me things person so i was dating this guy who was super sweet and for christmas we decided not to really get each other any presents like a five dollar rule because we're both grad students we got no money so anyway he had he had heard me say like a long time before that that i really liked like efficiency gadgets so he got me one of those little clips that goes on the end of your toothpaste tube and squeezes it so you don't have to roll it up and it's like these are a thing I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, he had one. Okay. So he had one. And I remember being like, this is so cool. So yeah, it just clips on the end of the toothpaste and like you move it forward and like squeegees all your toothpaste. So you don't waste any toothpaste. You don't have to like roll it. You don't have to squeeze it. And so he got me one of those for, that was the only present, like this like $1 thing. And I was so excited about it because I use it every day. 
And I think it was the thoughtfulness. But then I was like, I'm kind of like a cheap date. Like, I'm so easy to please. <laughs> um, so that was the one story I thought of. And then I, I, I did not, I was present for this. I did not participate in it. But this is, I think, one of the best presents I've ever heard of. That's also the worst present I've ever heard of. My friend was having a birthday and he opened a, little, a small box, maybe the size of like a watch box. And he opened it and it was like a clear container. And inside was a live scorpion. <laughs> That's awesome. That his friend had caught. So it was like, also, <laughs> like they just caught a scorpion and like gave it to him. And I was like, what? That is so cool. It was like cool and also terrifying. Yeah. But it was it was pretty awesome. And then we all we didn't take it out of the thing, but we all played with it and passed it around. And it was pretty 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 badass kind of a present. <laughs> Here is a scorpion <laughs> for your viewing pleasure. I will I will say that the rolled up toothpaste uh, thing bothers me so much. I don't like seeing rolled up toothpaste uh, well, containers. You're going to get a clip and it's going to be so efficient. Got to do it. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I guess worst, <laughs> worst gift, Jeff? What's your worst gift? Well, I already said my worst gift. It's everyone. Oh, yeah. From, so yeah. my best, best gift that I have given or received was um, actually uh, before we had our, uh, before we had our girls, uh, we had a miscarriage a couple years before that. And it was obviously devastating for my wife, but, but devastating for both of us. And at the time we were still at a, um, at the time we were still at our church, an evangelical church on staff. And it was, people said some stupid things and it was, it was a difficult time all around for so many different reasons. But this one lady came up to me after I had preached, um, it was the first time I had preached after the miscarriage and I was uh, pretty open and vulnerable when I was speaking and she came up to me with this card and it was just the, it, just this simple card that had uh it was a certificate of there's this ministry within the denomination I used to be a part of that gave Bibles to um, pastors that were being trained overseas. So, you know, I've, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, um, so she gives me this card and what she had done when she went on their website and she dedicated a Bible that was in memory of, and it just said, you know, baby and our last name. And, uh, it was profoundly touching to me in that moment because it was the first time that I felt like someone did something that spoke life that, that from that situation and all the stuff that we heard, it was the first thing that, that allowed the memory of that moment to continue in some way, shape or form, as opposed to just like, you'll get over it. You'll have new kids, all that kind of stupid, dumb crap that we heard um, from that. And that stuck with me. Like I still have that card in the Bible that I use when I do weddings or whatever. And it's just, it was, it was the first time I had ever been like moved by a gift that someone gave me. And it was just this simple card that said like, here's the, here's, here's in writing, like, in writing the name of something that you lost. And that it, for some reason it just, it hit me and it was very profound in that moment. That man, I can't top that. That's <laughs> a really good story. Yeah. That's, that's so thoughtful. I mean, it's amazing when gifts are done really, really well and really listen to the situation, they can really transform someone and bring them so much comfort and joy. It's amazing. I think it's such an art. It is to, an art to be a good and, gift giver. Um, 
Can I share my worst gift ever received? Yes, go for mm-hmm. it. Okay. Uh, I feel I feel like I've said this before on the show, so you can stop me if, if I have, because this is such a big part of my identity of who I am. And it was such a traumatic incident from my childhood that I feel like I must have said it at some point. But it was a Christmas, uh, and we were given <clears throat> ten bucks per brother to go buy a gift for our two brothers, because there's three of us. And I labored and bought my brother, I think a wallet, my older brother, a Vulcan wallet from like a skating company. And my little brother, I bought him two packs of Pokemon cards when he was like way into Pokemon, right? In yeah. ju- junior high. And I, I was like so proud. I would have loved that wallet. I would have loved those cards. So I know they're going to like these gifts, right? My little brother spent all 20 bucks on my older brother and gave me a pen from his room that he had found for my gift for Christmas and, or he might've bought it for like a dollar. I don't remember. And I remember opening it and seeing a pen and I just sat there and I must be like eighth grade. And I started getting angry and my parents were like, Alan, you need to say thank you. And I was like, no, he got me a pen. You got me a pen. I gave you Pokemon cards and you bought me a pen. And his smile, you know that little smirk smile that nobody else knows? Yeah. Everyone else thinks he's actually smiling and being like thoughtful, but you know this like malicious intent behind what he's doing. Oh my goodness. Little freaking siblings. Little freaking brothers. And I, I just remember like, oh my gosh, that pen. I hated it. I honestly can't think of a terrible gift I've given or received. I, I, I've e- either neutral territory or like in the luckier category. So I guess I'll share one more happy story because that's like a sad one. <laughs> it's a sad one to depend uh, on. I threw it away. I didn't even, you know, <laughs> unopened. I threw it away. It could have been was... the best writing pen you've ever experienced. I love my little brother, though. It's a good. <laughs> he gave me a memory, you guys. There you go. He gave me a story to tell. I love you. So I, I don't know. I think some of the best gifts are just kind words, you know, like you kind of can't mm-hmm. top just knowing people like care about you. My family did this thing growing up and like we'd always roll our eyes whenever my dad wanted to do it. But then once we get into it, we would be so excited. It's called the encouragement game. Like you cannot get sappier of a family tradition than the encouragement game. But like on someone's birthday, you sit in a circle and in your sundresses, all these, you know, four girls are hair blowing in the wind. Yeah, yes, basically. Of course. Yeah, of course. It's basically a sugar roast. So like everyone just goes in a circle and says like nice things about them. I've never heard that before. For like an hour. Sugar roast? A sugar roast. Yeah. Interesting. A sugar roast. <laughs> That's not a thing. It, I think it is a thing. I don't think it's I'm a thing. Sure. I think you just made it up. <laughs> sugar. No, so yeah, you uh, just encourage them. Like there, that, there is there's really no game to it. It's sure. just an exercise. But like after getting out of there, like. You feel like a million bucks, you know? <laughs> but it, it reminds me of like a, a, a project one, one of my friends recently did for their significant other. They just collected letters like for from friends and family and oh, put them all in a leather-bound book. That is so cool. And then that person has handwritten letters from their family for the rest of their lives. You know, yeah. it's, it was – and the, when receiving the gift, the person just sobbed, like just knowing uh, that someone had gone to all that effort to collect like 30 or 40 letters – and put it all together and like they have it forever so anyway if you're looking for a good gift idea that's a kicker so <laughs> either one of those options first oh, one's a lot cheaper so. i wonder if the the love language thing is really a thing you guys know the love languages thing yeah, yeah. like gift giving yeah. service talking they're all you my saying language. that mine is words above far and above beyond everything so else happy. words yeah when someone writes something i'm like oh my gosh and when i want to give something it's always writing Aww. so like that's a mixture of pen. two great things giving 
the gift of words. Wow. See, I'm the opposite. When I hear someone say words, I'm like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You hate words. I go home and like, like, I go home. Show me. Don't tell me. Like a fine wine. No. (laughs) Yeah, Jeff, you're totally like a action person. Like, I don't give a crap what you have to say about it. Do it. Do it. Get it done. Then I'll know you love it. (laughs) Exactly. That's hilarious. All right. Well, I think I think that'll do it for us this week. If you've enjoyed what you've heard you, and you want to support the show, you can go to irenacast.com slash support. And there you can see all the ways to do that. Also, if you can give us our... money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it will go 100 percent to the to overhead. <laughs> it will not go 100%. <laughs> not to any need. Guaranteed. Just to us. 100 percent. And, uh, and also, don't forget we have uh, we have a, about another week and a half for the book club. So don't forget to sign up for the book club and get the information for that at irenacast.com slash book club. We're really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, so I think that'll do it. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. Woo, we did it. Right. <laughs> we did it. Well... Do it now. <laughs> Compliment me. <laughs> 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 <laughs>